Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition, the first live program of 2019. Good to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. That's the new lineup here on the Georgine Rice Show. And uh, we're glad to have both guys on our team. Today we're going to talk with uh, Jerry Pattengale. He's actually a Ph.D., but he's the uh, one of the editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. It's an analysis of how we're doing as evangelicals, uh, as that word is often broadly used in terms of the robust nature of the mind. So we're going to talk with uh, Jerry Pattengale, one of the editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind. That's in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, I had a great holiday season, and uh, being away with family and just uh, relaxing, rejuvenating was precisely what I needed. It's always good to be back, but it was a great time of uh, being with family. My mother celebrated her 88th birthday, and that's always thrilling. We're grateful uh, to have her for another year. Uh, We spent a little time uh, with family. My nephew, who is a... uh, uh, who's in the Navy, I was going to say he is a captain, but that's about three weeks from now, uh, who's training and will have his commission here in the next few weeks, uh, was in town, so we got to spend some time with he and his wife. Uh, they're typically, uh, or he's typically stationed in Bahrain, so we don't get to see him as often as we'd like, but he's uh, faithfully serving the country, doing really well, and that that's always a, a great celebration as well. We did lots of music uh, enjoyed a lot of, um, of time with friends and hope you did the same. want to wish you a happy new year. I also wanted to announce that this year, in fact, this month marks the 15-year anniversary of James Blend producing the Georgine Rice Show. So for 15 years, he has had that role of uh, producing, and I wanted to congratulate him. And throughout the program today, you'll have an opportunity to hear from some of our colleagues, the general manager, Dennis Hayes, uh, the program director, Chris Um, whose last name I'm thinking of the other Chris. Thank you, Chris. Chris Kelly. (laughs) Thank you. Clark is on the other side of the glass trying to mouth the word. I mean, I know his name as well as I know my own, but there's another Chris who's circulating the halls today, and I've interacted with him several times. I'm thinking of his last name. (laughs) So anyway, Chris Kelly uh, and others. So um, congratulations to James Blend, who has served as the producer for the Georgine Rice Show. That's not all that he does here, but that is, uh, from my perspective, the main role that he plays here at KPDQ. Well, 2018, according to some, was a pretty good year. In fact, Victor Davis Hansen, writing earlier this month, points out that the year 2018 will be deplored by pundits as a bad year of more predictable um, headlines, uh, stock market gyrations, the melodramas of Robert Mueller's investigation, the musical chair tenures of officials and the Trump administration. But he points out that the government still shut down. Uh, impeachment is still on the minds of many Democrats who now control the House of Representatives. Uh, every day there's sensational breakthroughs, scandals, bombshells um, that race through social media, the Internet, only to be forgotten the next day. That's the nature of the news these days. But in truth, aside from the Washington hysterias, 2018 was uh, a most successful year for Americans in a number of areas. In December, for example, the United States reached a staggering level of oil production, pumping some 11.6 million barrels a day for the first time since 1973. 
America is now the world's largest oil producer. I know you could probably debate whether or not that's a good thing, but I think you get my point. Since Trump took office, the U.S. has increased its oil production by nearly 3 million barrels a day, largely the result of fewer regulations, more federal leasing, and the continuing brilliance of American frackers and horizontal drillers. It appears that there's still far more oil beneath U.S. soil than ever um, uh, thought. In addition, the United States remains the largest producer of natural gas and the second greatest producer of coal, which um, may or may not be on its way out. The scary old um, energy-related phraseology of the last half century, energy crisis, peak oil, oil embargo, no longer exist, at least for the moment. Near total energy self-sufficiency means the U.S. is no longer strategically leveraged by the Middle East, and that's good news. We're no longer forced to pay exorbitant political prices to guarantee access to imported oil or threatened uh, by gasoline prices of 4 to $5 a gallon, although it seems pretty close to that to me. Well, the American economy grew by 4.2% in its second quarter in 2018, by 3.4% in the third quarter. Quarter. American gross domestic product is nearly $1.7 trillion larger than in January of two years ago and nearly $8 trillion larger than the GDP of China. For all the talk of the Chinese juggernaut, three Chinese workers produce about 60 percent of the goods and services produced by one American. And in 2018, unemployment fell to a near record uh, peacetime low of 3.7 percent. That's the lowest U.S. unemployment rate since 1969. Black unemployment hit an all-time low in 2018. For the first time in memory, employers are seeking out entry-level workers rather than vice versa. The poverty rate is also near a historic low and household income increase. There are about 8 million fewer Americans living below the poverty line than there were eight years ago. Since January of 2017, more than 3 million Americans have gone off so-called food stamps. Abroad, lots of bad things that um, were supposed to happen simply didn't. After withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, the U.S. exceeded the annual percentage of carbon reductions of most countries that are part of that agreement. North Korea, the U.S. didn't uh, go to war. Instead, North Korea has stopped its provocative nuclear testing, at least for the moment. And it's launched a ballistic um, launching rather of ballistic missiles over the territory of its neighbors. And despite all the bluster, NATO and NAFTA didn't quite implode. Rather, uh, allies and partners agreed to renegotiate past commitments and agreements on terms more favorable to the United States. Well, the U.S. and increasingly most of the world is at least addressing the systematic commercial cheating, technological appropriation, overt espionage, intellectual property theft, cyber intrusion, Uh, mercantilism of the Chinese government, and that's a good thing. And the Middle East is still chaotic, but um, and it certainly is a mess, uh, but far less uh, important to the U.S. for a variety of reasons. Energy-wise, America is not dependent on oil imports from corrupt Gulf monarchies or hostile Islamic states. Strategy-wise, the new fault lines are not Arab and Islamic cultures versus Israel and the United States. Instead, it's... um, Uh, Strife within the Islamic world, mostly with Iran and its Shiite allies opposing the Sunni Arab monarchies and more moderate Middle Eastern regimes. For all the pro and anti-Trump invective and media hysteria, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation circus, the bitter midterm elections, the U.S. was relatively calm in 2018 compared to the rest of the world. There was none of the mass rioting um, demonstrations, the street violence that occurred recently in France, and none of the demonstrations and street violence that occurred recently uh, there occurred here. Europe's three most powerful leaders, Angela Merkel of Germany, um, Emmanuel Macron of France, and Theresa. Did you hear how I said that? That was pretty impressive. Macron? Uh, 
didn't enunciate, so it sounded better than it actually was. Theresa May of the United Kingdom, a worse approval ratings than the embattled Donald Trump, which is saying something. In some, the more media pundits claimed that America was on the brink of disaster in 2018, the more Americans became prosperous and secure. Now, that doesn't suggest that everything is sunny and rosy. Just a little perspective on 2018, which tells us nothing of what to expect in 2019, but perhaps to be a little less cynical and hopeful and working toward a brighter future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Jerry Pattengale, the state of the evangelical mind. So stay with us. Hi, this is Justin, and I just want to say to James, congratulations on 15 years of producing The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, You've done an excellent job. I really appreciate uh, all the hard work that you have put into uh, making this show what it is, of course, along with Georgine. You've been a great team, and I hope you'll continue to be a great team for some time yet. So uh, congratulations again, and uh, thanks for all the hard work you do. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're also acknowledging the 15th anniversary of James Blend serving as serving acting I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but he has been the producer of The Georgine Rice Show for 15 years. And that began in um, early January of 1885, I think, something like that. Anyway, so throughout today's program, you'll be hearing from some of our coworkers commending him for 15 years of indentured, I mean, service to the uh, to the station. Well, the midpoint of the president's first term is uh, fast approaching one area in which he uh, uh, deserves some accolade is it's curtailing the government regulation. Competitive Enterprise Institute's Clyde Wayne Cruz reported that in 2017, the Federal Register, the government's regulation repository, concluded with 61,308 pages under Trump. That was the lowest count. Wow, that's a low count. 61,308 pages. Uh, that was the lowest count in a quarter um, century since. 61,166 pages under Bill Clinton in 1993. Now, note, that's not a huge difference, but it is a bit smaller. It's also significantly below uh, the previous administration's 2016 record of 95,894. Well, this time, uh, Cruz points out, 2018's Federal Register was uh, has topped out at 68,082 pages. That's a 10% increase for Trump over his first year. Some important context is uh, in order. It's not a uh, as dramatic as it might seem, rules and regulations can't be revoked, only replaced by one by new ones under the 1946 Administrative Producer Act. No, that does not have anything to do with James Blend. He was not around in 1946. Anyway, the public notice and comment process. So for the president to get rid of a rule, his agencies have to write new rules to replace them or to demolish them. So in a perverse sense, he can't shrink the Federal Register page count and the number of rules, but has managed to do it anyway by writing fewer new regulatory um, uh, rules rather than uh, deregulatory ones. So a little difference from years before. Also, U.S. employers added 312,000 jobs in December, blowing past Wall Street's expectations for an increase of 177,000 jobs, even on the heels of a tumultuous month for the markets that saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 post their worst performance since the Great Depression. Makes one scratch one's head, one's own head, presumably, in wondering what uh, 2019 has to hold. The unemployment rate uh, rose to 3.9 percent, while the labor force participation rate rose uh, slightly 
to 63.1% from 62.9% during the month. Average hourly earnings, meanwhile, rose by 11 cents to $27.48 over the year. Average hourly earnings have increased by a total of 84 cents uh, or about 3.2%. Well, California Democrat Representative Nancy Pelosi won the election on Thursday last and will retain her position as Speaker of the House. For the second time, Pelosi served as the House Speaker from 2007 to 2011, the only woman to ever hold that position. Her return to the Speakership position makes her only the seventh individual to do so on non-consecutive terms. At 78 years old, she will uh, tie former Democratic Texas Representative Sam Rayburn as the oldest person elected to that role. Now, the Rayburn Senate office building is named after that senator. One can only imagine what uh, Pelosi's name might be attached to at some point in the future. At 78, uh, Pelosi will tie the former Texas uh, representative. Despite ultimately running for the uh, nomination unopposed, Pelosi faced a challenge from a small but vocal fraction of Democratic congressmen and congressmen-elect who expressed their opposition to her ascension to the leadership position. A cohort of House Democrats began circulating a letter in mid-November in an effort to block the California congresswoman from winning that nod. Sixteen Democratic representatives signed that letter, citing the need for a new direction within the party. The uh, dissenters, however, were not able to uh, find an adequate challenger, and ultimately various signees of that letter began taking back their opposition and supporting Pelosi. She earned the Democratic nomination in November, winning 203 members of her caucus of the 239 Nine votes cast, 32 voted in opposition, three uh, were uh, left blank, and one member was absent for that vote. House Minority Whip Steny Hoyer, House Speaker-designate Nancy Pelosi, and Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer, um, all successful at uh, either retaining or uh, regaining their former seats. Well, on the first day of the new Congress, one returning Republican welcomed two GOP lawmakers to Capitol Hill with a special tweet Florida Representative Brian Mast, 36, tweeted the photo on Thursday after he posed with Indiana Representative Jim Baird, 73, and Texas Representative Dan Crenshaw, 34, to Congress with the caption, five eyes, five arms, four legs, all American. Hmm. These uh, veterans celebrated their welcome to Congress, as Fox 59 reported at the time. Baird lost his left arm in, a, in the Vietnam War. Crenshaw lost an eye as a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan. And Mast lost both his legs and a finger in an explosion also in Afghanistan. Crenshaw made headlines late, late last week before he was sworn in. The incoming lawmaker got into a back and forth with Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson after the comedian mocked his appearance. The freshman class, uh, and I should say it was kind of an a refreshing exchange between the two that resulted in everyone saying, yeah, this is how we should resolve these kinds of conflicts. It hasn't been repeated thus far, which is unfortunate, but one can hope that 2019 will be somewhat brighter. Anyway, the freshman class that was sworn in included 22 new members who worked for the CIA or served in the military, according to The Hill. But I love that caption, five eyes, five arms, four legs, all American. Well, when Republicans uh, control the House of Representatives, they required a three-fifths supermajority to pass income tax hike. That rule is now out the window. The new Democrat-controlled Congress has just uh, removed the requirement that three-fifths of House members must vote to raise federal income taxes. The new rule also removes the requirement that such uh, votes be automatically recorded. Other changes include no more dynamic scoring. 
The Congressional Budget Office began using dynamic scoring in 2015, but now it won't have to do that. The new rule removes the requirement from the Congressional Budget Office and Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation to consider microeconomic variables or dynamic scoring uh, when they estimate the budgetary effects of major legislation. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan was a proponent of dynamic scoring. Critics say it allows Republicans to make their tax cuts look good by incorporating economic growth into their cost estimates. Uh, For example, the Trump administration promised uh, its tax cut plan would pay for itself by stimulating economic growth. Automatic suspension of the debt limit when the House adopts a budget resolution, a separate joint resolution suspending the federal debt limit through September 30th of the budget year is deemed to have passed the House by the same vote and is engrossing or certified separately and sent to the Senate. So it uh, simplifies things somewhat. The 72-hour rule, well, this new rule requires legislative text to be made publicly um, available a full 72 hours before it's considered in the House. Previously, legislation text could not be considered before the third day on which it had been available to members, not the public. And then there is a consensus calendar. This new rule establishes a consensus calendar of measures that have at least 290 co-sponsors. Only this co-sponsorship threshold is reached and various other conditions are met. Uh, The sponsors of the measure may, while in the House, uh, while it's in session, I should say, submit to the clerk a written motion to place that measure on the consensus calendar. Now, the House Speaker has to uh, designate and the House must consider at least one measure of the consensus calendar during any week in which the House convenes, except at the beginning or the end of of Congress. So this sort of expedites the process uh, somewhat. A new Office of Diversity and Inclusion will be established in the House of Representatives to report on uh, workplace or, or on its workforce, among other things. Um, A new select committee on the climate crisis will be established to investigate, study, make findings and develop recommendations on policy, strategies and innovations. A new select committee on the modernization of Congress will be established to investigate, study, make findings, hold public hearings and develop recommendations on modernizing Congress. And there are no more term limits for committee chairs or members of the budget committee. So that'll work um, for folks who serve there. Um, The Committee on Oversight and Government Reform is renamed the Committee on Oversight and Reform. The Committee on Education and Workforce is changed back to the Committee on Education and Labor. Doesn't seem significant, I suppose, to most of us, but it was apparently meaningful to them. And the um, annual ethics training is now required to all or for all members, not just new members. Uh, Sexual relationships are banned not just between members and their office employees, but between members and committee staff. Um, The new rules uh, on religious headdress have been changed. It maintains the existing prohibition on wearing hats in the hall of the House. Uh, It clarifies that this prohibition does not include religious headwear. Legal issues related to the Affordable Care Act are also addressed, among other things. So you have a new House, new rules, and what happens is next time the Republicans have the majority, those new rules become old rules. Some of those are jettisoned, which will favor the party in power. And it goes back and forth. That's the way it's designed, and that's precisely what happens. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder that uh, Dr. Jerry Pattengale will join us to talk about the book, a series of um, uh, very uh, interesting essays, The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. James, happy 15 years. It's been a delight having you on staff. Uh, you bring laughter, 
and you always do a phenomenal job in all that you do. So happy 15 years, looking to the next 15 years. Uh, by that time, you'll probably be almost as old as Methuselah in the Bible. Anyway, happy 15 years. We're happy you're here. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, the Democrats uh, took over the House. They're ushering in a wave of Trump investigations. They're about to get uh, subpoena power, and they plan to use it. Well, they officially took uh, control last week of the House when the new Congress was seated on Thursday. Newly empowered House committee chairmen are preparing to launch a slew of Trump administration investigations. Those Democrats armed with subpoena power include Representative Jerry Nadler, the incoming chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Representative Elijah Cummings, a Democrat from Maryland, incoming chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and Representative Adam Schiff, Uh, Out of California, incoming chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. In a press release last week, Cummings said that his committee plans to investigate waste, fraud and abuse in the Trump administration, as well as other issues that affect the American people every day. The looming uh, congressional probes amount to another front in the Trump ever-expanding battle with institutions ranging from the mainstream media to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, all coming as Democrats flirting with a 2020 bid also train their uh, political sites on the administration. Areas of interest probed by these committees could cover everything from the president's ousting of Attorney General Jeff Sessions to uh, the president's past tax return as a businessman to Trump's relationship with adult film star Stormy Daniels. House Democrats uh, campaign on using a new majority to uh, push back against the Trump administration while their most pressing issue will be trying to uh, find a way out of the partial government shutdown that's been in effect for nearly three weeks now. Scrutiny of the uh, Trump administration will be uh, next up on the list of priorities. As I mentioned, the president plans to speak to the American people tomorrow night, 6 o'clock p.m. our time, and uh, we understand that the subject will be national security uh, encompassing the uh, the wall that has stood between um, a budget and the Congress that uh, has just been seated. Well, with their party in control, several House Democrats uh, forged ahead this uh, last week with legislation aimed at changing future presidential elections, curtailing the commander in chief's power and so on. It's always interesting when the power, when one party comes to power, they make changes that sometimes they regret when their party falls from power and the next group moves in. But nonetheless, articles of impeachment and a move to end the ongoing partial government shutdown, albeit without the, the president's explicit demand for funding for a border wall, that effort Uh, failed rather quickly. Well, also uh, brought up at the 116th Congress convened for the first time, Representative uh, Steve Cohen, a Democrat out of Tennessee, introduced a pair of constitutional amendments that would eliminate the Electoral College as well as strictly prohibiting a president from uh, pardoning himself, family members or associates. Um, Trump uh, secured the 2016 election by winning the Electoral College with 304 votes to Democrat Hillary Clinton, 232 uh, but Clinton beat Trump, uh, Trump rather, by nearly three million. Since then, many Democrats have vociferously opposed the system. Now, my guess is, and we've addressed it here several times, I won't do that again today. Most people have no idea what the purpose of the Electoral College is and why it's worth uh, maintaining rather than simply jettisoning. And we'll probably vis- revisit that at some point when the issue uh, is debated. But nonetheless, um, Uh, The new Congress is uh, planning on a number of things, including the uh, jettisoning the Electoral College. Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories from earlier today, weekend's 
uh, talk to end the government shutdown, show little progress as the president stands firm on his demand for the border wall and in a concession to Democrats supports building it with steel instead of concrete. I'm not sure what difference that will make. Uh, But nonetheless, there was that concession offered. Representatives from the U.S. and China met uh, and started a two-day season of talks to settle the trade and economic disputes. Uh, The president has said earlier that so far things are going well. Not quite sure how to interpret that. In a TV interview on Sunday night, freshman congresswoman and rising Democratic star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called herself a radical and slammed the president's uh, lies on immigration. And Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book were the big winners in the 76th annual uh, Golden Globe Awards on Sunday night, as the awards show mostly steered away from politics. However, Vice Star Christian Bale, he bashed uh, the former Vice President Dick Cheney and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in his Golden Globe acceptance speech, but it was refreshing, refreshingly focused primarily on the event itself. Well, the president and Democrats appear to be as far apart as ever on the border wall, as little progress appeared to be made during the weekend talks and the partial government shutdown approached its third week. After the president and vice president wrapped up separate meetings on border security and the ongoing partial federal government shutdown on Sunday, the president offered his strongest endorsement yet of a proposal to build a steel wall rather than a concrete barrier, a Distinction most Americans observing had no idea even existed. Um, they uh, don't like concrete, so we'll give them steel, the president told reporters after returning to the White House from that meeting with his advisors at Camp David. Well, the president framed his new pitch for a steel wall as a concession to the Democrats to move negotiations along as the shutdown entered its 16th day. Meanwhile, Democrats pushed for the full text of several spending bills to reopen the government on Sunday that the White House and the Senate Republicans have long said has no chance of rather have no chance of becoming law because they do not include any funding for a wall of any kind. Meanwhile, the clock keeps ticking. Well, officials from the United States and China uh, are meeting for two days starting today in Beijing, marking the first time the countries have held talks since the president and the, uh, the presidents, uh, Trump and Xi Jinping, agreed early last month to postpone further levies for 90 days in an effort to negotiate a deal. The U.S. trade delegation led by Deputy Trade Representative Jeffrey Garish is Uh, will visit uh, China for the two days uh, beginning today and through tomorrow, according to China's Ministry of Commerce. The president said on Sunday that China's weakening economy is an incentive for officials there to reach a trade deal. The tariffs have absolutely hurt China very badly, he told reporters outside the White House. I think China wants to resolve this, uh, this thing. Well, on this day in 2004, President George W. Bush proposed legal status, at least temporarily, for millions of immigrants and properly working in the United States. And on this day in 1999, for the second time in history, an impeached American president goes on trial before the Senate. President Bill Clinton faced charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. He would be acquitted. Keep in mind that um, an impeachment does not mean a president is necessarily removed from office. And on this day in 1789, America holds its first presidential election. Election as voters choose electors who, a month later, select George Washington to be the nation's first chief executive. Well, as I mentioned, the U.S. trade uh, delegation led by Deputy Trade Representative Jeffrey Garish 
uh, visited China today and tomorrow. Uh, the two sides are working to resolve disputes on trade and other economic issues. The ministry said in a statement that the vice minister level officials from the two countries spoke on the phone, decided on the trip that aims to pick up on the consensus reached by the leaders in Argentina last month. The Wall Street Journal earlier reported about the trip and said that there, if there is progress in negotiations, Chinese trade officials led by Vice Premier Liu He uh, will follow up with talks in Washington the following week. China and the U.S. reached a truce on the trade war and agreed to settle disputes for those 90 days, and we're still within that window. Well, China successfully landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon Thursday, becoming the first country to ever land on that side of the moon, spaces away from Earth, according to state news media. The official China Central Television said the lunar explorer uh, Chang's 4 had touched down at about 10.26 a.m. local time. Uh, a professor in, uh, at Macau University of Science and Technology who worked with Beijing on the mission said the mission's success is a major milestone for the country and establishes it, at, establishes it rather as a pioneer in space exploration. We Chinese people have done something that the Americans have not, have dared not try, he said, according to the New York Times. A photo taken and sent back from, uh, or by, rather by Chang's 4, shows a small crater and a barren surface that appears to be illuminated uh, by a light from the Lunar Explorer. Its name comes from that of a Chinese goddess who, according to legend, has lived on the moon for millennia. Probably surprised not to find her there. The moon's far side is also known as the dark side because it faces away from Earth and remains comparatively unknown. With a different uh, comp- uh, composition from sites on the near side where previous missions have, in fact, landed. Well, as I mentioned, the president announced that he will address the nation on Tuesday night before traveling later in the week to the U.S.-Mexico border as he's trying to highlight border security and presses Democrats for wall funding amid a protracted standoff that triggered a partial government shutdown now stretching into its 17th day. I am pleased to inform you that I will address the nation on the humanitarian and national security crisis on our southern border Tuesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, the president tweeted. Now, some are suggesting the president might seize this opportunity to declare a national emergency, and he certainly could do that, but that does not mean that he has access to the resources to carry out uh, what that declaration of national emergency would require. The president plans to address the nation from the Oval Office in a first for his presidency. His travel plans to the border were revealed earlier in a tweet by White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, writing that uh, the president um, will travel to the southern border on Thursday to meet with those of, uh, on the front line of the national security and humanitarian crisis. More details will be announced soon. A few enforcement sources Uh, say that the president plans to visit the border of McAllen, Texas. The president's visit will come on what is likely to be the 20th day of a partial government shutdown. Numerous government agencies uh, first ran out of funding on the 22nd of December. Democrats vowed to block the president's request for $5.7 billion to build that border wall, and the president insisted on the money, hence the standoff. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. Hi, James. It's Chris Kelly, and I guess you can be 15 twice. So happy 15th anniversary with you and Georgine, and looking forward to 15 more. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 47 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. 
Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Dr. Jerry Pattengale. He's one of several editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. That's coming up in our next hour. Well, as I mentioned, the president plans to travel to the southern border on Thursday, this following his uh, press briefing from the Oval Office on Tuesday. He's going to travel the uh, border in a bid to highlight the border security uh, as he presses the Democrats to change their minds on funding the wall. White House Press Secretary tweeted the president's travel plans earlier uh, today. The president's visit will come on what will likely be the 20th day of that partial government shutdown. Well, last week, House Democrats proposed a bill to fund the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees construction of the wall at current levels through the 8th of February, with $1.3 billion for border security, a figure far less than what the president requested. Senate Republicans so far have not taken Uh, taken that up. The president told congressional Democrat leaders during a meeting on Friday that he was willing to keep the government shut down for as long as necessary, possibly months or even years, in order to get the funding he wants. Well, after a weekend uh, filled with subsequent meetings about the shutdown, the president gave his strongest endorsement yet of a proposal to build a steel wall rather than the concrete barrier at the southern border. President framed the pitch for a steel wall as a concession to Democrats to move negotiations along. They don't like concrete, so we'll give them steel, he said. The, pre- the Democrats don't appear moved by the president's message. Now, I mentioned that the um, press briefing that is expected tomorrow from the Oval Office, uh, some believe that he'll declare a state of emergency, giving him the authority to move forward. But much of where the wall would be placed is on private property, and uh, that authority does not extend to seizing private property. So it's not clear to what extent uh, that kind of uh, declaration of emergency would uh, allow him to do all that would be necessary for that wall to move forward. So we'll just uh, wait with everyone else to find out what the president actually intends to say, make the case for border security or beyond that. Meanwhile, John Bolton, the national security advisor for the president, said on Sunday that U.S. forces will remain in Syria until key benchmarks are met which could mean troops could stay in the country for years, according to a report. Now, that seems to contradict flatly what the president seemed to be saying last week. The New York Times reported that the uh, that that advisor said that ISIS must be completely defeated and Turkey must promise that it would not target Kurdish uh, troops in the country. The paper reported that Bolton and other officials in the White House have been working behind the scenes to slow the president's order last month to pull the 2000 troops after declaring victory over ISIS. The president declared victory over ISIS in a tweet. His decision to pull out troops was met with resistance, took many off guard. Senator Lindsey Graham said that at the time that he was blindsided, but then said that he felt pretty good about uh, Syria after a lunch with the president. Well, the uh, senator said an early withdrawal by the U.S. would expose Kurd fighters and lead to their slaughter. The president insisted that he did not give a timeline on uh, when he would pull the troops out in his December announcement. Well, um, uh, Secretary Bolton, who was in Israel, said he expects American troops to eventually leave. But the timetable flows from the policy decisions that uh, we need to implement. So it's not at all clear what the uh, announcement by the president actually means in terms of bodies moving from one place to another. Well, Democrats have big plans on energy and environmental policy in the year ahead when they take control of the uh, House, which they have now done. After eight years in the minority, House Democrats aim to push back on the president and his administration, efforts to roll back regulations and to put officials under greater oversight. They're also facing intense pressure from progressive groups to embrace an uh, ambitious uh, green agenda. Republicans still control the Senate. The president's uh, 
Uh, the administration officials are also working on a new round of deregulation at federal agencies, setting the stage for a number of high-profile clashes. Although I suppose that comes as no surprise to anyone who's been listening or paying attention at all over the last four or three years. Well, here's what to watch uh, in the year ahead on energy and environmental issues. Lawmakers are going to be under a microscope regarding climate change in 2019 after a slew of recent reports that forecast dire effects from rising temperatures. Now, there have also been uh, contradicting or conflicting reports, but you don't really get to hear or see much about them. House Democrats will face the most pressure to act as new members demand leaders take more decisive action to correct the effects of climate change. A group of nearly two dozen House members and incoming lawmakers led by Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are already backing the idea of a new select committee charged with promoting what they've dubbed a Green New Deal. We'll talk more in detail about that at some point this week. The committee they hope to establish would aim to get the country running on a 100 percent renewable energy electric grid, among other goals. But that committee could clash with others, such as energy and commerce, natural resources and science. Pot Democrats um, said to take the gavel which they have now done on these panels, are already pushing back. Carbon of a, uh, rather, talk of a carbon tax is also heating up. A bipartisan group of House lawmakers in November unveiled an historic carbon tax bill, a proposal that would gradually ramp up fees on carbon dioxide emissions. Expect more debate on that in the year uh, ahead. Also, the Trump administration has been uh, taking big steps over the last two years to undo major Obama administration regulations on Environmental Protection Agency Uh, regulations, and those uh, efforts are on track to kick into high gear in 2019. The EPA is planning to roll out final versions of three major deregulatory uh, actions, replacing the Clean Power Plan with a uh, weaker regulation on carbon emissions from power plants, replacing the Obama administration's auto efficiency and emissions rule with a less stringent uh, version, and rolling back major parts of the Obama administration's methane pollution rule for oil and natural gas drillers. Each of the rules was a major part of former President Obama's climate change agenda. Each role back is likely to be a big victory for the industries, um, the industries that it impacts or they impact. And they're coming with uh, major new reports from bodies like the United Nations and federal government showing that aggressive action to cut greenhouse gas emissions is necessary to avoid catastrophic effects from climate change, the United States being the only nation that's actually uh, done so. And after taking the House majority, Democrats believe that they have a mandate from voters to conduct aggressive oversight of the Trump administration, with environmental policy being a critical part of that. Democrats' committee chairs will have the power to call hearings, set agendas, even compel administration officials to testify or produce records if they want. That's likely to be most pronounced for the Interior Department and the EPA. And the president announced in November that he intends to nominate. Um, Mr. Wheeler to uh, formally take the EPA's helm, but with time running out, uh, Wheeler's confirmation process is nearly certain to be pushed and has been to 2019. It doesn't seem like that's uh, going to happen. Uh, Trump will uh, still needs to formally nominate Wheeler by sending paperwork to the Senate. With the Senate majority of Republicans, it may be easier than uh, one might imagine, but um, the committee chair uh, would then have to schedule a hearing with Wheeler and the committee vote uh, from Uh, before sending him to the full Senate for a vote, and that has yet to happen. House Democrats are looking to push the Trump administration and other institutions to embrace science and avoid what they see as skepticism of research on issues such as climate change, which is interesting because we want to apply science in some areas and ignore it altogether in others. Representative uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, the likely incoming chairwoman of the House Science Committee and a nurse, 
will be the first woman with a science degree to have the panel's gavel since 1990. Um, She's likely to herald uh, a shift in the panel's work from its current chairman, Representative Lamar Smith. And as chairman, she introduced controversial bills such as the Secret Science Reform Act, which supporters said would make agencies more transparent about how they use science. And critics said it would restrict the science, uh, scientific study the government could use. So we'll see what happens there. But certainly a shift is on the horizon. Meanwhile, when Oregon's uh, next labor commissioner is sworn in, in fact, she was this afternoon, the state governor and attorney general, both women, will be administering and did the oath of office. It's significant, Governor Kate Brown noted last week, because labor commissioner-elect Val Hoyle is also a woman. For the first time in Oregon history, a majority of statewide elected executive offices will be held by women, Brown's office said in a statement. Her office said she and Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum will celebrate the milestone at the swearing-in one month before Oregon's 160th birthday. Now, it is certainly a milestone. Let's only let's hope that these are wise women who wield their power uh, with wisdom and justice. Um, the fact that they are women is certainly um, uh, worth noting, but the kind of <laughs> leaders they are also matters. So let's hope that they lead well. As women. All right, we're going to have to take a break here in just a moment. But before we do that, I do want to mention that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, missed oral arguments today for the first time since she joined the court in 1993. She's recuperating from a recent cancer surgery. The Supreme Court spokesperson said that she underwent lung surgery in New York City last month to remove cancerous growths. She's continuing to recuperate from that surgery and is expected to return to the court. The spokesperson said that Ginsburg um, would participate in the consideration of the cases, though written briefs, uh, rather through written briefs and transcripts. So that does not mean she is incapacitated and cannot weigh in on the final decisions. But there has yet to be a date decided for when she will return to the bench. She's 85. Last month, she underwent a pulmonary uh, lobectomy at Memorial uh, Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for um, after two nodules in the lower lobe of her left lung were discovered. The Supreme Court uh, issued a statement. The discovery came incidentally during tests after she fractured several ribs during a fall in November. The news release said both modules removed during surgery were found to be malignant, but scans uh, performed before surgery indicated no evidence of the disease is elsewhere in her body. No further treatments are planned. But this being the first time since uh, coming to the Supreme Court, that she has missed oral arguments. 58 minutes, almost 59 minutes after 4 o'clock. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jerry, uh, Dr. Jerry Pattengale. He is one of uh, several editors of the State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. It's sort of a follow-up from other observations on uh, the evangelical mind. The, the uh, And we'll talk a bit more about those uh, books that preceded this one. But that's coming up in the second segment of our next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. Hi, it's Andy West. I'm the production director here at KPDQ, which means I'm in charge of all the commercials you hear. James Blend is a good friend of mine. I've known him for years and years. And I just want to say congratulations. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And in fact, today, this week, marks the 15-year anniversary of James Blind producing the Georgine Rice Show. So throughout today's program, you're going to hear from some of our colleagues, the general manager, the uh, program manager, and others uh, just commenting and congratulating James on 15 years of service. Now, Producing this program isn't the only thing he does here, but this does mark the 15th anniversary for that particular role, which he has uh, played here on the Georgine Rice Show. Also in this hour, we're going to hear from Dr. Jerry Pattengale. He is one of several editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. It's a, a relatively small book, but it covers a lot of ground in helping us to better understand, as the title suggests, The State of the Evangelical Mind, and it's sort of a follow-up on similar questions with regard to uh, the intellectual strength of evangelicalism in the past. So we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Pattengale about that coming up in our next two segments. So uh, looking forward to it. Well, despite uh, chatter of an impending recession looming uh, and nonstop political headwinds worldwide and other worrisome headlines, 2019 is poised to become a reasonably good year, according to global risk group Eurasia. Now, every year, the uh, consultancy uh, group founded by the by um, Ian Bremmer releases its top predictions for prudential uh, risk. Now, these are not uh, we're not talking about um, ruminating over what you think might happen. These are things based on current conditions that they believe would likely happen. Um, More likely, and despite increasingly uh, worrisome headlines, 2019, they predict, is poised to be a reasonably good year, even dare we say not a particularly politically risky year. Now, that's hard to imagine, but uh, we're setting ourselves up for trouble down the road, big trouble, and that's uh, our top risk, the group said in a statement. Still, even with the optimism, Eurasia found uh, some potential dangers for the world over the next 12 months. Uh, Some of the top 10 among them, some things to keep your eyes and ears uh, open for, the geopolitical dangers taking shape around the world will bear fruit in the years to come. They're talking about bad seeds. Eurasia says the current geopolitical dynamics with the EU, NATO, the G20, G7, and Russia to the WTO are are trending negatively, every single one, and most in the way that uh, hasn't been in evidence since World War II. Indeed, the overwhelming majority of geopolitical developments that matter The wide array of issues that we follow at Eurasia Group, more than 90 percent of them are now headed in the wrong direction. So suggesting there are dangers lurking, we may not see them come to fruition in 2019. Again, not really a headline, but just their uh, prediction. Also, with regard to the U.S. and China, the troop that the president, um, Presidents Trump and Xi struck at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires last month, put a temporary halt on the path of tariff escalation in the U.S. and China had embarked on. Yet uh, it's they're still growing concern about the world's most important bilateral relationship. And according to this group, they're not particularly confident. Now, the president said things are going well. Uh, we're meeting. We have representatives from the United States meeting with Chinese representatives um, today and tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Uh, but they suggest this um, Eurasia group suggests that the trade and economic disagreements will be resolved um, will not be resolved anytime soon, and something more fundamental is broken in the relationship between Washington and Beijing that can't be put back together, regardless of what happens to their economic ties. Now, that's that's not that's uh, perhaps an informed uh, speculation, but not necessarily one that will come to pass. Uh, this year marks a decade since the U.S. and Israel destroyed portions of Iran's covert nuclear weapons program using a computer war known as Stuxnet. Uh, sucks net rather ushering in the modern era of cyber conflict and now they're predicting that the cyber gloves are off 
Ten years on, hackers have grown more sophisticated. Societies have become heavily dependent on digital services and efforts to agree on basic rules of the road for cyber conflict have gone nowhere. It's something of a mess. Again, this is a developing story, not necessarily one that will come to full fruition in 2019, but I think we'll see more progress in the wrong direction, which doesn't make sense. Regress, maybe that's a better way of putting it. Uh, When uh, Macron uh, beat um, his opponent in France's 2017 uh, presidential election, some argue that the populist tide that had swept Europe since the onset of the Greek debt crisis in 2009 could be receding. Uh, But they're suggesting that they're skeptical of that uh, interpretation. And 2019 will show that populist and protest movements are stronger than ever. What we witnessed in France over the last several weeks perhaps is evidence of that. So European populism, they're predicting, will uh, only increase. Uh, This one um, is an interesting one, the U.S. at home. This will be a chaotic year for U.S. domestic politics, while the odds of uh, the president being impeached and removed from office remain very low. Political volatility will be exceptionally high. I think a third grader could probably have made that prediction, but nonetheless, it's on the horizon. Uh, A global tech cold war, they're predicting. Innovations winter was uh, top risk number three last year. Over the course of 2018, technology competition grew extremely political. This is the year investors and markets will start paying the price. Uh, We're heading for a global innovation winter, a politically driven reduction in the financial and human capital available to drive the next generation of emerging technologies. The shortfall will have important consequences. That seems a reasonable um, anticipation. And the U.S. once led a a Washington consensus with regard to a coalition of the unwilling, a collection of countries committed to U.S.-led global order and the institutions it was built on. This order has been eroding for a couple of decades now, a trend that became more obvious with the 2016 election of Donald Trump. It didn't begin the trend, but it's accelerated perhaps somewhat. His, his America First campaign message proclaimed his view that the U.S. should no longer play a leadership role. Many of Trump's critics call this strategy America alone. Now, I would interpret it differently. I don't think the president suggested that America shouldn't play a leadership role, but it shouldn't tether its future to Uh, the prospects of other nations. Also, Mexico on this list, domestic risk factors loom large. The country's new president uh, begins his term with a degree of power and control over the political system not seen in Mexico since the early 90s. Um, His uh, party has comfortable majorities in both houses of Congress, and together with allies, it could reform the Constitution at will. Now, that could be a good thing or a not-so-good thing. We'll have to wait and see. And with regard to Ukraine, contrary to common perception, Putin isn't always on the lookout for the next country to invade, and he isn't aiming to start a new war in 2019, they predict. But then there's Ukraine. November's clash um, with the Kirsch Strait was a taste of coming tension, and that happened just weeks before the coming new year. Putin continues to see Ukraine as a vital Russia, or rather vital to Russia's sphere of influence. They're shared historic, political, cultural links. They've um, undergirded Russia's actions since long before the 2013-2014 maiden revolution. Putin believes that Russia should have a decisive say in Ukraine's future and will seek to uh, continue to seek to impose that will on Ukraine. And uh, finally, Nigeria. The country faces its most fierce contested election since the transition to democracy back in 99. One candidate is the incumbent. Uh, He's an elderly, infirm leader who lacks the energy, creativity or political savvy to move the needle on Nigeria's most intractable problems. His opponent, another um, 
uh, well, elderly candidate who would f- uh, focus on enriching himself and his cronies, avoiding the difficult and politically unpopular tasks necessary for reform, postponing what uh, many predict will be a, a challenge for Nigeria moving forward, economic and otherwise. Meanwhile, Alabama Republican Roy Moore was reportedly targeted by another false flag operation organized by Democrats who supported Doug Jones during the state Senate special election in 2017. A New York Times story revealed uh, earlier today that Democrats created a Facebook page that gave the false impression that it was the work of Baptist teetotalers supporting Moore in the contest. Uh, that Dry Alabama Facebook page, which called for outlawing alcohol in the state, intended to alienate pro-business, moderate Republicans from more, the paper reported. Again, this is the New York Times. Democrats reportedly saw an opportunity uh, to win that race after Moore was hit with allegations of past inappropriate sexual conduct. Uh, Jones went on to win the race. It's the second report in recent weeks of a stealth social media effort by pro-Jones activists. An investigation is underway to clarify what happened, and it's very likely that charges will be filed. Coming up, we're going to talk with Jerry Pattengale. He's the uh, one of the editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. So stay with us. James, happy 15 years. It's been a delight having you on staff. Uh, you bring laughter, and you always do a phenomenal job in all that you do. So happy 15 years, looking to the next 15 years. Uh, By that time, you'll probably be almost as old as Methuselah in the Bible. Anyway, happy 15 years. We're happy you're here. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's been two decades since Mark Knowles' scandal of the evangelical mind, and the question is now being raised, are we on the threshold of another crisis of intellectual maturity in Christianity? Or are the opportunities for faithful intellectual engagement and witness even greater now than they were before? Well, the book, The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future, asks poignant questions and gives uh, answers in a series of essays that invites readers to a virtual summit meeting on the current state of the evangelical mind. The insights of national leaders in their uh, fields will aid uh, us readers uh, to reflect on the past contributions of evangelical institutions for the life of the mind, as well as prospects for the future. Among the contributors, Sir Richard uh, Miao, um, Mark Knoll, Joanne Lyon, Mark Galley, and many others. The state of the evangelical mind frames the the resources needed for the church, universities, seminars, parachurch organizations to chart the course for the future, both separately and together. Well, joining me today is one of the uh, contributors and editor uh, to this um, compilation. And I'm just delighted to have uh, Jerry um, Pattengall with us. He holds special appointments at Indiana Wesleyan University, the Museum of the Bible, Ecclesia College, the Sagamore Institute, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and Tyndale House, uh, Cambridge. We are delighted to talk about this series of essays that gets us all thinking about the state of the evangelical mind. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's great to be on your show, and I must tell you and your viewers that uh, when you read your bio, it says that you've been uh, uh, with a station for 20 years in some capacity. Your youthfulness, it sounds like you started when you were 10, so... 
Uh, must be nice. It, it is rather shocking to hear it said of yourself <laughs> that you could have done anything for that length of time. I can definitely, uh, definitely relate. I, uh, this October, I will have been at this station for 30 years, and someone said that aloud just the other day. I found it shocking, even though it was entirely <laughs> accurate. So you have my sympathy. Uh, <laughs> well, this yeah, is an well, interesting... You're in good, yeah, you're in a good part of the world, though, to uh, uh, spend a lot of time, so... Ah, yes, we we love it here. Now, the state of the evangelical mind might lead some listeners to think that this is a conversation among academics about the future of seminaries, universities, and parachurch organizations, and has little to do with a rank-and-file believer who sits in pews once a week and is engaged in Bible study and trying to encounter the culture. So maybe we can just begin by talking about why this is a relevant subject that really is a part of an ongoing conversation that began many years ago with regard to the state of the evangelical mind. Oh, yeah, that's actually a great segue into the book, because the actual um, big takeaway from the book is what's happening in the pew with all the research and all of the gains at the Christian university or in the parachurch or seminaries. In fact, Jamie Smith, who's one of the contributors, um, he said, basically, when I look at what's happened, and for him, it was a recent election. I don't know people's politics, but uh, for him, he was wondering um, if people are concerned about particular things, and 80-some percent vote in favor of Donald Trump. But he he wanted to know if that uh, was showing that the all of the research and all the work among the academics is working or not. And others would say, oh, yes. And so it depends on where you are on the, the side of the political spectrum there. And so the main takeaway, regardless of which side of the political divide you're on, is Mark Knoll, 20 years ago, said that Christians just really aren't publishing on the main stage. And since that time, Books and Culture, you know, it had a great run. It just, mm-hmm. uh, it, it just um, uh, closed due to finances, but had a great run and was solid. John Rosen's a good friend, and I still work with him in other capacities. He, he's the editor of Books and Culture. Uh, but a lot of things in, in the book, Mark Knoll's essay shows that since that time, a lot of great things happened. A lot of great books were published. He said when he wrote that essay, he looked around Wheaton College where he was at the time. There were a lot of strong books, but none of them were outside the Christian publishing houses. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, today, if you look at where Jamie Smith's at Calvin College, you look at Indiana Wesleyan, we've had probably 200 books published uh, just in the last few few years. It's a pretty large university. But that wasn't the case when he wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And so Jamie Smith and others in this book are saying, so what? What about all these books? Does it really inform the person in the pew to help them understand better? The people that go to um, uh, concerts uh, to hear you uh, and others and, and to hear you speak, you and Dan, when you sing, I think you guys still travel and sing. And so the book is about what about those people going to those Christian concerts? What about the people out there? Are they um, gaining anything from all of these new books that come out by the academics? And are they really informing people in their choices? And so um, that's really the big takeaway from this book. Seminarians, are they coming to a more obedient um, place in their lives uh, before God? Are they understanding God better? Are they better teachers of Scripture? Um, Or are they learning erudite things? And so... 
Um, that's really what the challenge of this book is. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't a novel. You can't rush to the end and see what the answer is. But was there generally a consensus that we're moving maybe not as effectively or as quickly as we'd like, that we're moving in a direction that is constructive, that the evangelical mind is um, robust? Or are there, are there still big question marks about whether or not um, we are taking advantage of opportunities that are available to us? Well, I think there's a consensus by all the contributors that the evangelical mind is becoming more robust among the educated. And uh, the, the authors are split. Now, these are conserv- con- overall pr- pretty conservative authors, mm-hmm. at least orthodox authors. Uh, and we have a sequel book coming out as well, um, Public Intellectuals and the Common Good, with John Perkins and and Miroslav Wolf and others coming out um, in about a year and a half from this. But uh, in one essay, again, Jamie Smith, Jamie Smith said, I looked at, uh, this helps to answer your question mm-hmm. directly. Jamie Smith said, you know, when I saw the ECPA's top book award last year, it was Tim Tebow's book. And he said, so what's that tell you? And so Jamie would be saying, all of this book, all this stuff we're doing, all of these uh, projects, and you're choosing, um, and he would be saying, a lightweight book. Not that it's not a good book, but it's not. He, he doesn't say it's provocative, think deeper. And I was moderating the session, Georgina, and I said, Jane, he's, he's a phenomenal speaker. Um, I, I uh, booked him once. We had to go to another room because there were 200 people, couldn't get in. But I said, you know, I said, first of all, Full disclosure, I've been a longtime judge of the ECPA Book Award. <laughs> yeah, I said, just think about it. So we're, this is a packed, a packed room at the Sagamore Institute in Indianapolis. And uh, I said, um, and also there's other categories. ECPA is the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. And I said, but you know, I said, really, there's different, there's different types of books written for different purposes. And the mass, the masses out there resonated with Tim's book, and I said I happen to know through a friend of mine who's a producer that Tim gained royalties to produce a pretty good Christian movie. And I said, so I challenge you, Jamie, you know, to become a judge if you want to make a difference in any way. And I think he did. So, um, is it making a difference? Are we reaching them? Uh, I, I would say yes. I, I think there's so many great books. And a lot of the a lot of the people who are writing the finer uh, provocative books at the academic level uh, may not even be reading some of them. They're reaching the pew with more regularity that are in practical theology and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you could probably name four or five that have uh, that have helped um, people in your church. So I, I would say it's a it's a both and. Yeah, yeah. And so 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 that would be my quick answer here. Um, the, the place that was struggling the most, I think, over the last several years um, was actually not the Christian college, but the seminary. And the seminaries, as you know, have really struggled in the United States overall. And then you have seminaries like at Indiana Wesleyan that started about 10 years ago and were full immediately. And you know, it's being more sensitive to the needs of the pastor and getting back to teaching, uh, you know, teaching the basics um, of scripture and how that relates to the pew. And, you know, so, so that I, I think is one of the, you know, one of the lessons we're looking at here. Stanley Harwell said years ago in a book I reviewed, he said, we need to keep in mind that the whole reason we have Christian education is so that we understand God more fully. He said, so no matter what else you're doing in Christian colleges or seminaries, 
He said, that's the reason that you're a Christian university. It's some places like Taylor University and Indiana Wesley and Huntington and Calvin. That, that really is the essence of what what the schools are doing. And um, Cedarville, Wheaton, you know, so that's some of the exciting um, things that are happening. And you know this last year, Georgine, two years ago or so, um, the oldest seminary in the country closed, Andover Newton. Hmm. And one, one of the authors on a TV series I'm working on, uh, uh, the State of Faith 2020 uh, through TVN, uh, one of the people helping me is a graduate. He's one of my last graduates. And I just reviewed a book from Charlie Phillips from the McClellan Foundation. It's a friend. I was reading it, and I noticed that the book was about a fellow, a mass of parks who's in the Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, lineage um, in theology. He had won the major award in the entire um, – in, in all of North America for theology, and it was a major award during his lifetime given at the preeminent school for orthodoxy, Andover Newton. And now it's closed because it had gone mm. so far away from teaching the basics. So, so I think this book gets at uh, making sure that the colleges, uh, seminaries, uh, parachurch organizations are resonating with the pew, but it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what you can expect in the book, because I think it's very um, helpful for us to think about where we stand in terms of a, a robust evangelical community that's thinking deeply and having an impact on our culture. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm having a conversation with Jerry Pattengale. He is one of the editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. And for those of us who care about uh, our place in culture and uh, life today in terms of our faith and uh, evangelical worldview, this is an excellent um, thing to stimulate conversation, I think, among those of us who uh, who care. Now, let's talk about the book itself. I have the benefit of having the book in hand. Our listeners do not. Let's talk about its structure and some of the contributors, because this is a pretty impressive uh, lineup of contributors. Uh, yes, it is. Um, if you like history, you know, T- Tim Larson um, is one of the contributors, and anything he's at Wheaton, about anything Tim, Tim writes, I would recommend you read. And then Mark Galley, um, many of you or most of you would know Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. Mark is the editor, and Mark closes the book. It basically says, let's not abandon the term evangelical. He said, um, let's endorse it for all that it is. It's, you know, it is the gospel. It's about the gospel. So Mark is one of the contributors. Julian Lyon, um, I don't know if you've had her on your show, Georgine, but she uh, started... Um, World Hope, um, remember Limbs of Hope that uh, gave some of the um, uh, survivors um, of terrorist activities um, limbs, and she's the first woman, uh, General Superintendent of the Wesleyan Church, and Janie Smith at Taylor, and then Lauren Winter at Duke. Uh, Lauren's fun, no matter um, uh, where you meet or what context, she's <laughs> fun, the Mark Knoll, and then Richard Mao does introduction. So, so that's the cast of people. And then uh, also David Mahan, excuse me, David Mahan uh, from Yale. And um, he he writes a, a piece with Donald Smedley on the parachurches. And um, 
I'd, I'd like to read some numbers that he gives here that might Please. actually be of interest. Is that, is that okay? Yes. So while we're debating what's happening in evangelical circles, and if we like the name evangelical, and even even the parachurch group that David Mahan's at at Yale, uh, they used to be part of Campus Crusade, which became Crew, they decided to become part of a collective for the Ivy League school, so they don't have that name anymore. And in a sense, they're less less aggressive evangelical, if you were, or evangelistic anyway. But he gave the numbers for InterVarsity Fellowship in 2000, and um, he said that there were 1,500 decisions just in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in 2000. But then he said um, what's interesting is what was taking place in Crew. And he said that there were over uh, 127 decisions to become Christians among the crew or Campus Crusades group in 2010 and 11. He said it jumped to more than 200,000 in 2013 and to 378,000 converts in 2015 and 16. That's almost 400,000 people became Christians through the work of Campus Crusade. And and so this book is actually bringing to light, uh, you know, we don't get everything right. Um, evangelicals have been highly criticized by uh, people um, because of what's happened in politics. Mm-hmm. Where, again, whether you know one side of the aisle or the other. But while all that's going on, there's still a lot of people becoming Christians, and there's a lot of things happening around the world, uh, especially overseas. I just came back from Rwanda. And you see the intensity of the evangelicals there. And it is amazing. So there's still a lot of wonderful things going on. And I think sometimes it can be myopic when you only associate the word evangelical with political debates, Mm -hmm. things of that nature, and not the philanthropic aspects of things that are happening. Now, half a century ago, um, anti-intellectualism was the concern among evangelicals. Have we stepped beyond that? And what would you or how would you and the contributors to the state of the evangelical mind, how would you characterize the challenge that we face moving forward in the 21st century? <laughs> yeah, I'm 60 years old. So so <laughs> I, I actually came, came in on the tail end of the intellectual. You know, a lot of the schools, uh, even before my time, you think of Christian colleges and where they're built, like Houghton College is a great school, but it's built, well, it's, it's built in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's gorgeous. Well, it was built, in a sense, to get away from the world. And it was certainly an anti-secular um, time because of what was happening in Germany and in a lot of the uh, strong liberal uh, teaching. Well, in the age of the Internet and, um, you know, the mega churches and a lot of, a lot of the, the movements that are going on, I think there's a call among millennials to have substance uh, in, in what you're doing and holding you to task, you know, on what you're saying. And, and so I don't sense in this book and other things that we've slipped at all in, you know, into anti-intellectualism. Um, if anything in the church, I think what we've seen, even in these authors in the discussion is authenticity uh, has increased among um, spiritual teachers in, in conservative churches because uh, I think the millennials um, fared out those who are not genuine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so that's actually a, po- a positive thing. Um, 
that would be you know one of the one of the things that has developed. In terms of the, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it I, does. In terms of the institutions that we rely upon to uh, to help form the evangelical mind, to inform and, and influence the church, um, what are some of the challenges? I know that uh, economics can be a, a real challenge uh, for these institutions to thrive. Uh, are they being sufficiently supported? Are there uh, is there so much competition that they're less effective? How would you describe the challenge they face? Um, as we move into uh, and continue to move into the 21st century? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Of course, you know, with the radio station you have, you know, the um, the, the, the the very real challenges on the finances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of scenarios are closed due to funding. And, and an institution, um, my definition of an institution is um, a systematic response to recurring need. And, and, in order for it to be systematic, there has to be sustenance. And some people don't believe in endowments. They believe that it leads you to liberalism. Um, uh, there's many cases where that leads you, you know, down the wrong path when you get comfortable. And, you know, a lot of institutions are heavily endowed, have lost their way totally as a Christian institution. And so, um, yes, the, 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 the Christian colleges across the nation are struggling I won't give any names here, but they've had, you know, enrollment situations in only 50 students at a lot of schools um, results in millions of lost revenue. So that's an issue. Um, you know, typically over 80 percent of all the giving in the country comes to Christian churches. And so that really hasn't changed. And so I I would say that if if you're reaching uh, what we find, if, you, if you're reaching the person in the pew with a message um, that is attached to orthodoxy, and you're doing it in an engaging way, then from the early church forward, that's been the time and, and the way that uh, you know, you're, you're finding yourself um, supported. And I, I happen to you know, have been privileged to work with a lot of wealthy families, and you know, they, they don't necessarily look for, for organizations that, are, that have money to keep going and so forth. They're being asked for money, but what they're looking for uh, and the ones I've worked closely with, the Greens and others, they're looking to see if, if God's anointing has been on those organizations. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the funding part, you can be as highly educated as you want to be, or you can be, or choose to be. But if if you're a part of a ministry that isn't meeting a spiritual need, I, I think you are going to have um, financial problems sooner or later. I mean, you just are. And so... I think that's going to be with us, um, you know, until the rapture. So, I mean, that's that's my my understanding, having been on a lot of boards and a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Christian causes. We're almost that's out of Christian, time, but I okay. I have to ask you about um, theological orthodoxy. I know for many institutions, uh, the subject of same sex marriage, for example, uh, or same sex attraction, has been a major issue that has been somewhat divisive. Is that an issue that's being adequately addressed within institutions that are informing uh, the church and the evangelical mind, or is there concern there? Uh, yeah, it's 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 being addressed. I think at about every corner. Um, Shirley Hoekstra at the CCCU headquarters. Um, it's one of the biggest challenges she had, and she, I think she lost some members in trying to be loving and, and, and accepting, and yet still be orthodox. Mm-hmm. And, you know. 
And so, yeah, it is being addressed on every corner. In, in this book, it's, it just it doesn't happen to be a topic within this book that is addressed, but nearly every place I go, it's it's either a litmus test discussion. Now, when I was in Rwanda, it really wasn't a discussion. I mean, they were pretty pretty entrenched and solid on their beliefs on that issue so that, um, you know, it, with the Anglicans, they were definitely um, – conservative Anglican. And so for them, it was, wasn't even a discussion, you know, so uh, it's about as uh, clear a uh, case for most of the Anglicans. Uh, Ang- Anglicans in Rwanda that I met would be akin to the um, conservative Christians or fundamentalist, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, yeah. or those of us today who still believe in the fundamentals. So uh, it's a thorn- it becomes a thorny subject, but it I've seen it addressed in in very uh, helpful and insightful ways without disbanding, uh, without throwing out Romans 1, you Mm -hmm. know, and so to do it in a way that still endorses um, Orthodox teaching, but that Orthodox teaching that also comes with the evangelical call to, to love your neighbor. Well, the book is titled The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. Great essays by a number of names you may be familiar with and others you should be familiar with and will be after reading the book. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Pattengale. I appreciate your work in helping to compile this, and we look forward to the next volume that's coming out in about a year and a half. Oh, yeah. And I will say, I forgot to mention, it's, it's rated first in new releases in several categories, exciting and the other editors todd ream uh, from taylor university and chris devers from uh, johns hopkins university really worked together on this and it was a labor of love and, and john boyd at university press so it was a wonderful project to be a part of well well done and thank you so much for uh, making it available and congrats on the success of your show thank you so much bye-bye All right, blessings bye-bye. again the book is titled the state of the evangelical mind you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll be back in a moment to wrap things up you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the last segment of the first live show of 2019. This is the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, let you know what's coming up later this week in the program. We're going to be talking with Dino Carsonakis. I think I got that right. I'll have to work on it. He's a co-author along with his wife, Cheryl. And yes, it's that Dino of Hymn Restoration. It's an interesting book that not only recalls the hymns, but gives you a bit of the history of them as well and hopes that it will spark growing interest in uh, the hymns as a part of worship today. We're also going to encourage you to listen in on the president who will address the nation on national security, focusing primarily on his desire for a wall and the government shutdown. That's six o'clock tomorrow. We'll remind you then. On Wednesday, we're going to talk with Art Alley, founder and president of the Timothy Plan, Biblically Responsible Invest. We'll have a brief conversation on uh, some things you might want to consider before uh, putting together your investment profile or portfolio. On Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Judge Tom Cole, retired, paid in full as the ministry that he and uh, Pastor Rich Jones uh, founded. We're going to bring you up to date on what they're uh, what they're doing moving forward and, well, establishing a seminary in uh, local jail so or prison. We'll talk with him about that. Well, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine has been born again. That's how uh, Jason Casper, writing for Christianity Today, put it. Uh, on January the 6th, it received the tomos of autocephaly, close enough. 
The documentation of its independence among Eastern Church bodies from the one Orthodox heavyweight, the Patriarch of Constantinople, despite the uh, opposition of another heavyweight, the Patriarch of Moscow. And the primary motivation behind this was to get out from under Moscow. Well, to understand the significance of the biggest Christian schism since the Protestant Reformation unfolding since last fall and formalizing this weekend as Eastern churches celebrated Christmas Eve, a brief history. Founded in Kiev in 988 AD, Vladimir the Great accepted Christianity on behalf of the Rus people, the Russians, who would eventually uh, constitute the nation's of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Well, tradition holds that the formerly pagan Vladimir, not this one, but an earlier one, wished to give a religion to his realm and queried uh, representatives of Judaism, Islam, and the different uh, rites of Christianity. Astounded by the majesty of the Byzantine mass, Vladimir chose Constantinople, and in uh, 1054, the Great Schism split Christianity, and the Rus remained in the Eastern Orthodox world. Well, geopolitical winds shifted, however, in 1686, the Patriarch of Constantinople, considered within Orthodox leadership to be the first among equals, placed the Patriarch of Kiev under the ascendant Patriarchal Church of Moscow. Well, in the modern era, uh, era rather, geopolitical and religious winds continue to blow. In 1991, Ukraine became an independent nation. The following year, a breakaway bishop, a metropolitan in Orthodox parlance, uh, established an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church based again in Kiev, joining a smaller Orthodox schism from 1990 in staunch opposition to the Moscow-affiliated church. Well, neither group was recognized by the patriarchs in Moscow or Constantinople. In 2014, Russia annexed the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian territory of Crimea. The pro-Russian separatists with uh, reported Russian backing occupied two Ukrainian territories in the eastern area. And in April of this year, or I should say last year, it's now 2019, this was April of 2018, the president of Ukraine flew to Constantinople, now Turkey's Istanbul, to ask Patriarch Bartholomew for a tomos of um, autocephaly, a schism between it and the Russian overlords. Well, the Patriarch uh, of Moscow immediately followed, protesting the political interference in church affairs and the rest you now know. From Russia, without love, Ukraine marks Orthodox Christmas with biggest, the biggest schism uh, since 1054 in the Orthodox Church. Sort of an interesting uh, development uh, there. Also, an estimated 160,000 people will be able to experience the New Testament stories in their own sign language for the first time. Thanks to this week's Passion Conference that raised nearly a half a million dollars for Bible translations for the deaf. There are hundreds of sign languages. None have a full Bible translation, however, and just 2% of the deaf people around the world have access to the Gospels in their sign languages, which is crucial for deeper understanding of Scripture, according to the Deaf Bible Society. Well, donations from 40,000 students at Passion 2019 will go forward toward uh, translating Gospel stories for the deaf in 16 countries, Mexico, Cuba, Colombia, Moldova, Egypt, Ghana, South Africa, Tanzania, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Myanmar, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, Japan, and Russia. Well, in recent years, Louis um, Giglio's uh, popular student conference has raised millions for justice causes, but this was the first year urging participants to back sign language Bible translations. The event was held in Atlanta, Dallas, Washington, D.C. It featured 
from the main stage, a 21-year-old who leads Bible studies for the deaf in her community in the Philippines. She prayed in sign language. She appeared with an interpreter. I'm partially deaf and wear a hearing aid in my left ear. So to hear that the Passion 2019 mission this year is to help uh, reach deaf communities, I cried, tweeted one attendee. Well, they did that effectively and they raised $450,000 for Deaf Bible Translation. So kudos for uh, that opportunity for the gospel to be um, read and understood. Again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Dino Kartsanakis, a co-author of Hymn Restoration. We'll also continue to follow uh, news and headlines, and the president will be addressing the country at 6 o'clock p.m. Um, on national security with an emphasis on the government closure and, of course, the border wall. I want to thank James Blind for uh, producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.